fans, not only babies, but people. Somebody just died shy of their 100th birthday. Uh, my friend Jonathan's Aunt Happy just died a few days short of our 110th birthday. It's an amazing, amazing... It's a, it's a strange body. It's got every... And, and somebody said to me yesterday, you know how uh, packages in the supermarket have a shelf life on them? <laughs> We do too. You know, everybody's pancreas has a shelf life, and at some point it says finished. Now you have to deal with your diabetes, or something else gets fake. They don't know, all the shelf lives aren't all the same. And she said to me, if we all knew the shelf life, we would be so much kinder and so much more present. I think that's really the eternal lesson. So the, the lesson, that, that was the lesson, uh, the lesson that we will pretend that we're starting now, but that was actually it. Um, because I think that there, there's a, where was this line here that says, generosity is the beginning of, um, and the end of practice. I think maybe the biggest generosity in a certain way is is the generosity of giving up the idea that things ought to be other than how they are whenever however they are because they're like this in terms of what liberates the mind from suffering. I mean the central teaching of the Buddha is that suffering is a tension in the mind when it's filled with the um, or not even filled but when it's disturbed by the imperative that things should be otherwise. It's been so important for me to be thinking about this in recent years. That uh, my, my sense of what generosity is has uh, escalated from uh, it's, a, it's a lovely virtue to have, it uh, sustains a community, to really thinking that the ultimate generosity is to let is to really do what one can in life to be active in life to act on behalf of of the comfort of other people and the well-being of all people and to not uh not struggle with what you can't change to give up the idea that it must be different now that translation of uh, the second and the third noble truth, the first being life is challenging for for everybody, for everybody, uh, in little and big ways. Every time we're disappointed, we have to say, "All right, I didn't get that. Oh, okay, I wanted it, but I didn't get it." I think it's a perfect thing to start the new year with, because we say, "Okay, I was planning on this." It's not what I have. Start again. We'll have something else that we dedicate ourselves to. I think that that sense of a passion for something in life, like the passion for living or the passion for improving the state of the world. It's actually interesting. I just stopped because it's interesting because I heard myself say the word passion and it's not a word that you hear a lot in, in the middle of a Dharma talk. When I first began to hear about Buddhism, I heard about dispassion and uh, 
not getting emotionally invested in things and that really not becoming emotionally invested was actually the key to the end of suffering because then you wouldn't suffer. Things would be the way they are. But uh, however much that may be a particular thread of 2,500-year-old spirituality, it's not the cultural context in what we live, in which we live right now. We want to be passionately involved with things. We want to care. It's actually, for me, it's what makes my life uh, exciting to continue to go on with. I want to be able to vote next year and four years after that. Somebody told me today, well, you know that the the candidates for president in 2016 are going to be X and Y. No, I didn't know that. <laughs> but, but, you know, I could well start to get passionate about that. I didn't get passionate about next year yet, you know. That, uh, this year, oh, we're in 2012, yeah. How to have, this is going to be an interesting year to be able to give up uh, partisanship in the sense of give up the notion that people with other political ideas are wrong-headed bad people and be able to think of them as people who have different ideas than I do. Uh, it's a form of generosity. Uh, but the main generosity, by the way, when I say, well, you know, it's a uh, plain disagreement. You have your idea, I have mine. The generosity involved in giving somebody, you know, uh, a sort of a pass on their point of view is not for the person, it's for me. Because otherwise I have to not like them and think they're wrong-headed. And um, Each time that I, I, I find myself in a, in a situation where my mind has to reshuffle its cards in a certain way, I feel like this is good for me. Uh, I just remembered this. Uh, maybe we'll get around to saying what I thought I was going to say. Maybe not. I just remembered that after the last election, I was two or three days later at a uh, uh, benefit dinner for Zen Hospice in San Francisco. So Zen Hospice is uh, really the founding hospice movement in the Bay Area. Its uh, founder really uh, has been teaching and is still teaching really the the, the, the tenets, the, the dharma of hospice work uh, all these years. And uh, it's an extraordinary organization. Um, so I was at a, at a dinner at a restaurant in San Francisco, and everybody at the dinner were people who had substantially contributed to Zen Hospice. So even though I was sitting at a table of eight or ten people who didn't know each other, they, as people will in such a dinner, who've come together around a certain cause, liked each other because they, you know without everybody saying that everybody has contributed to the same worthy causes you have. And the, the table discussion was about Zen Hospice, about a few other things, uh, about personally the people around you, uh, where do you live? I live here, I live there. I just got back yesterday uh, or last week, said one person from um, a trip uh, in the, down the Amazon and uh, in some sort of expedition like a uh, Smithsonian expedition that had studied birds of the Amazon. I chatted with him for a while. Thought, what an interesting man. 
you know, read Smithsonian, goes on these exhibits of all these people, good people. And then we got on the topic of the election a couple of days before, and everybody was very enthusiastic, very happy about how they had watched and how the... And not quite everybody. I'm not noticing for a while that everybody is totally into this conversation. Until the man who had been on the Scientific American birdwatching that I had liked so well three minutes before <laughs> said, <laughs> in a very quiet voice, he said, you know, uh, I need to say that I voted differently from all of you. So there was maybe like a five-second quiet in the, in the table. You have to realize these are all well-dressed, well-bred uh, uh, people who have contributed to a good cause, who are probably, I figured that their minds all did what mine did. Went, and it said, wait a minute, factor in a few more factors. Nice man, educated, supports the scientific America, the Smithsonian, goes to the Amazon, interested in bird watching, thoughtful, supports Zen Hospice. He's got another idea. I said, really? Oh, okay. And then it goes on. And nothing, you know, it was a completely smooth. Nobody didn't notice it. People noticed it. And the rhetoric about how fabulous, that quietened down out of a certain amount of respect. But clearly the, this man was included in all the discussions. And I imagine everybody's mind went from, ah, to, oh, okay. People have different views. And people have different views who are thoughtful, who think. And it was just a relief actually. It, it kind of calmed down the whole situation from overwrought to thoughtful. People have different beliefs. We're going to have to do that a lot this year. <laughs> I don't know. I was, wasn't pausing for effect. I was pausing because I was looking for the one thing I wanted to read out of here. Uh, this is from the um, Anguta Nikaya. It's one of the writings in the Buddhist canon. It says, these are the five rewards of generosity. Uh, they'll seem familiar to you. See if you recognize them. One is dear and appealing to people at large. One is admired by good people. One's good name is spread about. One does not stray from the rightful duties of the householder. And... With the breakup of the body at death, one reappears in a good destination in the heavenly worlds. So this is a piece of Buddhist canon. What does it sound like that's familiar to you? Remember, there are 11 benefits of metta. People who practice metta wake peacefully, sleep peacefully, dream peaceful dreams. People love them. Angels love them. Angels will protect them. Poisons and weapons and fire won't harm them. Their faces are clear, their minds are serene, they die unconfused. And when they die, their rebirth is in heavenly realms. So there five, all five of these are really subsumed in the metta thing. And I read about that and I, and I remembered and thought, well, what I could really talk about, uh, going from there is the fact that, um, sometimes it seems to me, that we, we, we spread out everything uh, and parse it out as the ten paramitas and we talk about each of them, or the four noble truths and we talk about each of them. I started before on the first and I never got finished, 
but uh, so we'll have to loop back around now. But there's a way in which I think sometimes we could say that the whole Four Noble Truths and Eightfold Path and the Paramitas in about one sentence. Wait a minute, having said that, let me see if I can do it. <laughs> it's a challenge. Um, in our inevitably uh, challenged lives, uh, in which the mind suffers, uh, uh, whenever it struggles with reality, it's possible to cultivate uh, a heart that, and mind that rest in equanimity through the cultivation of certain capacities of heart that include uh, morality, um, uh, uh, mental discipline, and the cultivation of wisdom, and which manifest as generosity, morality, uh, renunciation, wisdom, patience, energy, uh, uh, truthfulness, determination, loving kindness, and equanimity. That's one sentence. But that's the whole of it. That's the whole of it. That's the whole of it. That's the Four Noble Truths the Eightfold Path, which is the Fourth Noble Truth, and the parsing out of kindness and compassion as, as, the, as, the, ten, as the Ten Parameters. I wasn't really doing that to show off, but I actually feel... I told that to somebody recently when I was teaching new teachers, and I said, you know, when I came up in the ranks of learning to teach, I would prepare a talk on the five... Uh, disturbing mind energies. I said, I could certainly do that still, but I can't keep it in that boundary because as soon as I talk about the disturbing energies, I have to talk about what are the uplifting energies and what are the spiritual forces that, that, that pick up the mind and what's the result if you pick up the mind so that it's not caught in the afflictive energies. And then what do you understand and what's the depth of wisdom and how does it manifest in the whole world? And it, so it's impossible, really. Every time I start, I say, okay, I'm going to talk about generosity. It's right away the whole of the path. What were you going to say? I'm just going to ask you, do you repeat that? <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> but, Sylvia, it's true that that's bothered me from the beginning of my study is all those lists and numbers, and I finally just kind of gave up on trying to remember all the order and the... Ten this and the eight that, and it it's a lot easier. It, it just seems like it does flow better that way. So well, if if you understand it as a package, if I I think to myself, I think all the time about what what do I hope is going to happen to me? I hope that I'm going to live without suffering up to the end. If I could, people say, oh, somebody asked the other day. I, I'm trying to remember. I'm so surprised by that because they say, do you ever suffer? And that's, of course, every time, many times a day, every time my mind falls into a contention about what's, what's going on <laughs> in the most ridiculous things. There's too much traffic in this hot freeway. Too much for what? This is a five o'clock traffic. And it's not supposed to operate for my convenience. And I actually know that the traffic is like this at this point. And so if I'd thought about it, I could have left earlier. But every time my mind, through 
just habit falls into some sort of disconnection with the world. If I'm not loving what is, Byron Katie says that all the time. And I understand that loving what is doesn't mean liking it. It means not being in contention with it. You know, we don't love it when someone when, that we care very much about is desperately ill. We don't like it. But to not be in contention with it, this is what's happening. And how can I hold my mind up? And the, I think the great, for me, the great insight of the Buddha is that we could. That's a very big deal. That when I first realized, when I began to practice, that um, when they said that I'd heard the third noble truth as uh, peace is possible, or contentment is possible, that I didn't have to be pleased in order to be content, and I didn't have to remember, forget what I was displeased about. I could remember. I am displeased because there are wars all over the place, because the poverty level in the United States is increasingly huge, uh, because the level of rhetoric uh, in in civil discourse, well, it's not civil discourse, but, uh, because I, I, I'm uh, concerned about the, uh, the, how to say this in a, in a good way. Uh, I had a, I had an idea recently, uh, not recently, I don't, I've had the idea through several cycles of elections that, uh, now that we have all this, uh, uh, important brain technology and we can tell when the brain is doing this or that, that everybody who's making a a, a political speech standing at one of those podiums should be wired up <laughs> and that every time they say something that isn't true or bells and gongs should go off. Don't you think that would be a great thing? Yeah. You know, that would be a great thing. Yesterday's, uh, yesterday on the Huffington Post, if you want to go back and look it up in the email, a- AOL carries the Huffington Post, the Huffington Post carries the Huffington Post. Yesterday on the Huffington Post, this is actually not to be partisan because you could do it on both sides. It uh, went through the previous day's debates and took several statements that that various people had made the night before and said this statement, which is written as a statement of fact. I was doing, I was doing English homework with my granddaughter this morning. And she was saying, this is, we were talking about the difference between a declarative and an interrogative uh, sentence. She said, a declarative statement is one that you just say because it's true. So it just means I'm saying it like it's true. But so they took all these statements, the Huffington Post, and then they said how it wasn't true and gave all chapter and verse about that. I thought that would be great if every day at the end of a television day, every day there was a television station. The television stations would have to print, like, you know, newspapers have to print errata, things we printed that weren't right that the television station would be obligated to write, or oh, we carried this and all these things. It's not going to happen. It's a huge fantasy, but you can, you can, look, at, you can look at websites that do that, but they're not, they are partisan, those websites. I want to really talk about... Oh, okay, so now this leads us to how, am I, how is this around with spiritual practice and generosity and giving another person some honest... Uh, some open thought 
uh, an open mind. Where does it say here about open mind? What is the treasure of generosity? This is also from the Anguta Nikaya. Um, what is the treasure of generosity? There is the case of a disciple of the Holy Ones, his awareness cleansed of the stain of stinginess, living easily, freely generous, open-handed, delighting in being magnanimous, responsive to requests, delighting in the distribution of alms. This is called the treasure of generosity. To give somebody else a fair speaking space and listen to them. Your and my friend uh, Tony Bernhardt, who comes here to teach from time to time, told me uh, before the last election, two elections ago, he was still working uh, in the government in Sacramento and, and commuting in his car from his office to his home in Davis every afternoon at 5. And he said, every afternoon I get my car, I turn it on, it's set to a station. He named the particular uh, host of that call-in station, call-in show, so what I wouldn't name, but a person known for um, inflammatory talk and inflammatory talk uh, of the side of the politics that neither Tony or I uh, are partisan to. He said, and I always accidentally, if I walk into a store, I hear it, I, I, I conduct my business and leave. But Tony turns that on purposely, purposely, and he listens. He said, I listen for 20, 25 minutes till I get home to see if I can not get mad the whole time. <laughs> Just to see if I can keep my, if I can keep thinking to myself, you know, this is this person's point of view. It's a little vituperative for me in his presentation, but this is this person's point of view. So I think to myself, maybe they're right. So no, I don't think they're right, but you know, I'm pretty sure I'm right, but you know, maybe they're right. A lot of people have that view. And how not to get all uh, distraught about it. I, t I tell him then, and every time I hear about it, even as I tell you, that that is way too advanced practice for me. <laughs> I, 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 actually, I actually don't do that. Because, in fact, I become aroused by that. And I'm, I'm sure that I become aroused because out of fear that people will hear this, people will believe it, people will be carried away by it. What did I hear this morning? Uh, as I was riding over, uh, someone was saying, people are... Uh, uh, easily frightened. Um, people are, what was it, were frightened? That uh, fear is contagious. But then he went on to say that courage is also contagious. And uh, I'm thinking about, thinking about that. Is courage contagious? I think so. You have leaders who say, let's do this, it's contagious. But to give away a point of view, or to make room for another person's point of view, not to give away yours, make room for the other person and not uh, ruffle your essential peace of mind. The reason that I want that, that I, I would say that that's my that, that I want to have the wisdom to m do these kinds of things in these circumstances is not because I want to have peace of mind finished. 
is because I want to have peace of mind because when I do, my response will be more helpful. My response will be for the good. My response will not create more suffering. It's extremely hard to do, I think, coming on into this season as well. So I'll go back and talk a little bit about generosity. How to do I want to do it this way a little bit. So if you can imagine the list of paramitas. uh, No, we have time. We have a list of paramitas. The first of the paramitas. Paramita means uh, virtue, uh, perfected virtue. And the list of them is ten, and it always begins with generosity, followed by morality, uh, renunciation, wisdom, patience, energy, truthfulness, determination, uh, loving-kindness, and equanimity. And there's a way in which each of those is a permutation of generosity. They're all generosity in a certain sense. So when it says here, the practice of giving, or dana and pali, has a preeminent place in the Buddhist teachings I actually think it's the beginning and the end of the path um, by not clinging to fixed views. I'll give you, before we leave, because I thought you'd like it, uh, the 14 engaged precepts, the 14 precepts of engaged Buddhism. But let me not complicate what we're saying now with that. Let me tell you how each of, because I think they are mirrors of what I'm about to say, that the, the morality is a certain kind, it, it, that to behave morally is to give the people around you a gift of safety. Once upon a time, there was a person on retreat here uh, who came and said to me, you know, I'm really upset because... Uh, uh, my wallet is missing out of my uh, room. And uh, so we don't announce it to the whole people, but I'm for sure it wasn't true. But I thought, wow, you know, we're all in the hall up there. Nothing is ever missing from up there. Just not to keep the tension in the mind too much. He came later that night and said, you know, I looked over the side of my bed and it had fallen off my bed and it was near the wall. And all of a sudden... Uh, it, it just was a perfect thing to end because <coughs> if it happened once in ten years, that would be too many times. You know, because we can say to people, it never happens here. It never happens. Here. I think it never happens in the bookstore either. Do you know that this bookstore runs entirely on you write your own, you count your own money, you put it in the box, and it works. And I can't imagine that anybody would want to take a Dharma book and not pay for it. I mean, that's a completely ridiculous thing. I mean, I mean, it can't work. I mean, you might figure wrong by accident, but nobody would do it purposely. That the act of giving something away or the act of receiving a gift, I thought of it the other night, it was in such a bizarre 
Well, it's kind of a little bizarre story, but it was late in the evening for various reasons. My husband and I had been out of town. We arrived home. We're living in Marin more of the time now. We arrived home, and and there wasn't anything particular in the refrigerator that I could easily cook. So I said, I'll just run down to the supermarket. It's a five-minute drive, and I'll get us sandwiches. That'll be great. We'll sit down and have sandwiches. Easy to do. Zoom over to the supermarket. I have two sandwiches made. I'm packing up to get out. $12. I open my purse. My wallet has fallen out of my purse at home onto the sofa. And I'm there and I'm with my purse. And I say, didn't bring my wallet. And I for sure thought they were going to say, go home, take the, take the sandwiches, and come back tomorrow. You know, this is an affluent neighborhood. You know, what's the chances I'm going to run away with $12 worth of sandwiches? I shop there all the time. <laughs> so they said, I, we have to keep them here. And um, so I went home and I got the wallet and I went back and paid for it. I thought to myself, that was not a cool move on their part. Had they, in fact, said, don't worry about it, come tomorrow, I would commit myself completely to this supermarket forever there. It's not that I'm sorry, going to leave them either. And it's not that I don't take into consideration that everybody works there and there's probably a rule and all of that business. But what if the, the corner supermarket said, come back tomorrow? And, and you, I mean, I, I would feel tremendously uplifted. I think we feel uplifted when we do something good for somebody else and they feel uplifted by it. This is one of my favorite books. I keep quoting it. This is Dharma Road. Um, it's uh, written by a cab driver. Um, you lo- don't see lo- much loving, ki- much uh, loving kindness out on the street these days. Everyone's battling the traffic, trying to get ahead of everyone else. We could use a few real bodhisattvas out here, <laughs> people who could help calm things down and show the rest of us how it could be. I'd like to do that myself, but I've got a ways to go. I'm working on it. I pull up at a Greyhound station on Tuesday afternoon, second in the cab line. Business is bad, even for a Tuesday. Midsummer in Austin has been slow for weeks. People with money are all vacationing somewhere that's cooler than the surface of the sun. The rest of us are stuck here chasing dollars. There's nothing coming out on the cab radio. I'd go out to the airport and sit in line there. But that hasn't been turning over easy, either. Anyway, this is closer. I keep the air conditioning running, engine on, burning gas. Nothing happens at the bus station until a bus comes in and there aren't that many buses. Drivers who work it regularly know the schedule. I don't. I figure I'll just sit there until something happens. Might get a good long fare, something to make my afternoon. Some good fares come out of the bus station. Or I might wait two hours for a $5 ride. I've got the midsummer cab driver blues. I've got them bad. After a while, I shut off the engine and get out. I'll sit in the shade, but there isn't any. Walk over to the back of the station where the buses load. There are a few people on the benches there waiting for the next bus. They all look like they're going to nod off and dissolve in the sun. I go inside to check the schedule, which would be the smart. I could go inside to check the schedule, which would be a smart thing to do. But I don't know. I don't want to know. There's a woman in the back of the station with a little girl. She looks. Lo- they look lost. She loads some suitcases in a taped cardboard box onto a small cart and sits the girl on top, pushes the cart out to the sidewalk. The girl enjoys the ride, but it's a short one. The woman stands there looking around. They don't look like they can afford a cab. 
Finally, she takes the little girl by the hand and walks over. Excuse me, do you know where the Salvation Army is located? It's downtown, four miles from the bus station. I tell her that. She looks troubled. The little girl is looking at her reflection in the door of the cab. She can't see much, but she seems entranced. In this heat, she'll be wailing soon enough. The woman thinks it over and asks, where can I catch a bus? If I were the king of the world or just the head of Capital Metro, I would put a bus stop right next to the Greyhound station. After all, it's a bus station, but there isn't a stop anywhere near here. I start describing the route she'll have to take to the closest bus stop, which is Highland Mall. I glass over at the suitcases, the cardboard box, the duct tape. I look at the woman. She looks like she has a black eye. Not a bad one, but it's there. I can't do it. Come on, I'll give you a ride, I tell her. You sure? I can't afford to pay you. I know you have to make a living out there. It's all right. I'm not getting exactly rich sitting here. <laughs> I walk over and collect the cart with the suitcases in the box, wheel it over to the cab. I load the trunk. Little girl stands on her toes on the curb, studying the inside of the trunk. I'm thinking I'm going to give her a ride to the bus stop. Then I get back in line at the sta- and then get back in line at the station. But I'm picturing her trying to get the suitcases on a city bus. I make a turn and head for the interstate downtown. I feel better already. I crank up the air conditioner. On the way in, we talk. It's what I thought. She was in an abusive relationship, and she's getting out. She's here to start over. She asks if all the people in Austin are as nice as I am. And I tell her, yes, most of them are, but I'm not usually this nice. I'm working on it. (laughs) When we get out to the Salvation Army, I help her with her bags. The people there are expecting her. She won't be staying at the shelter. They're going to help her get a new start. As I turn to leave, the little girl looks up at me, gives me a beautiful smile, and says, thank you. It's the first thing she said since she left the back of the bus station. It's like the sun coming out on a dark afternoon. From there, I head over to the Omni and load a $50 fare to Georgetown. And while I'm there, a call comes out of the radio, and I load another, coming all the way back downtown. And then, no, of course not. Life isn't like that. It's still Tuesday afternoon in July. I pull up third in line at the Omni, and I wait there for an hour to load a $5 fare going over to the Capitol. But I feel good about it. That's what counts. And a week from now, when I look back at what I've been doing, I realize that that was the best afternoon of the week. That was the one time I felt like I belonged in this world, like I had something real and important to do in this life. Isn't that good? Seriously, I love this book. Who got it? Anybody got it? Isn't it great? His name is Brian Haycock. I don't think it's in the bookstore. Um, I just bought two copies of it because I was, uh, I go through them pretty fast. If anybody wants to buy this one for me, I have another one at home, so I'll, I'll save you going. Uh, it's, but it's $17. Uh, what? You want to buy it? Okay. <laughs> It'll save you buying it. But you can get it for less if you buy it on Amazon. Probably 12 if you buy it on Amazon. 17 if you buy it today, then you have it. <laughs> so, but more, so now I have to go through, we have to go through the list. Morality, generosity, we don't have to, but I want to finish at least this part. Morality, gener- uh, renunciation is the other part of generosity. So we're not going to get through the whole list, but I want to stay on on this renunciation. Uh, Some years ago, 
James Barras and I went, were part of a group that went to India to meet uh, a man named Punja, who was an Advaita teacher. He's dead now. Um, and we were there for several weeks and going to satsang every day and really loved Punja. And he taught an Advaita philosophy, which is the philosophy of uh, seeing how everything is part of everything else. And nothing is independent of anything else. It's not so far different from what the Buddha taught. And it really has to do with the 14 engaged precepts, uh, 14 precepts of engaged Buddhism, which I will give you before you leave. So if you're here, the next time I'm here, we'll take this up as precepts of morality. If you're not here, you can put them up on your refrigerator anyway. Um, so we, we were there and we were enjoying Punja for all these weeks. And uh, at the end, we asked if we could have a private interview with him. And he said yes. And uh, we were... Uh, on the last day, he agreed to see James and me in a private interview. What do you teach, he asked. We teach mindfulness and loving-kindness meditation, James replied. And we especially emphasize generosity. There's no such thing as generosity, Punjaji said. <laughs> James and I exchanged glances and said, uh-oh. <laughs> we just started this interview and uh, already done it wrong. No such thing at all, Punjaji replied. There is only the awareness of need and the natural impulse of the heart to address it. If you're hungry and your hand puts food in your mouth, you don't think of your hand as generous, do you? If the people in front of you are hungry and you feed them, it's the same, isn't it? James and I took that, talked afterwards. Maybe he's right, I said. Let's think this through. If in the spring I'm putting away my winter clothes and I think, I don't wear this at all, I'll give this to the Salvation Army, that maybe isn't generosity. Maybe it's just closet cleaning. <laughs> maybe generosity is happening when I'm thinking, I did wear this a few times. It is still stylish. I like it. I could save it and wear it sometimes. Or I could give it to the Salvation Army. And then I finally decide I'll give it away. Maybe that's generosity. And I looked at James. Isn't that generosity? Maybe, James said, it's a moment of realizing that non-needing has won out over needing. I think that's actually very good. That there's a moment in which the mind is relaxed. That the feeling of I need it is a graspy feeling. I need it. I don't need it. And actually, it doesn't have to do with with want or like so much. Um, I once had a... Um, it has more to do with the joy of knowing uh, the pleasure of generosity Jack once said to me years ago, he said, if ever I have an impulse, if someone ever says they admire something that I have on or whatever, I give it to them. They say, I really like that. I give it to them. So I really took that to heart. And uh, I mean, if somebody comes to visit my home and they say it's a beautiful home, that, but we're not talking about that. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's really silly. I mean, because you have to be able to do it as well. You have to, I'm going to put a little story in between that. I have to talk fast. because 
the, when when Louise Davies gave six million dollars to build the Davies Symphony Hall, imagine you could build Davies Hall for six million dollars, but it, forty years ago, maybe forty, thirty, forty years ago, nineteen eighty, so three thirty-two years ago, someone interviewed her. The Chronicle, I guess, interviewed her. Said, "Miss Davies, why did you give six million dollars to build the Symphony Hall?" And she said, "Because I had it." Uh, and I thought about that, and it, it requires two things. She had to have it, but she had to also have the idea of how much pleasure it would give so many people to have that symphony hall. Have, so you have to have the pleasure of how it would be for that person, and you have to be really able to give it. We always talk about that when we talk about Donna, and even here, thank you for the gifts that you leave, leave for me. I'm always... When, after you do this, a week or so from now, I get a check in the mail. Oh, look at that. And I never say thank you. I forget to say thank you. Thank you very much. But it's always like a happy feeling. Look at that. Uh, so I was somewhere teaching. I went somewhere to teach for a weekend or a week. And I had one of those wonderful pashmina scarves that people have. And the particular one I had had a, a beaded fringe edge which I particularly like because if you flung your scarf over your neck, the beaded fringe would keep it lying in a certain way. And it was bright red. It was beautiful. And I flung it over. And I wore it all weekend. And when I was leaving, my person, I'd stayed at somebody's home, and she said, I love your scarf. It's so beautiful. And I felt like saying, here, I'll give it to you. And she said, no, no, you can't do that. I said, yes, sure I can. Really? Anyway, I gave it to her. I never missed it for a second. I never missed it for a second. If I wanted another one of the same, I could go out and get it. I don't want another one of the same. I like it better not having that one of that same and thinking somewhere in the world that red scarf that used to be mine is hers because that moment of pleasure really was worth way more than having the scarf or keeping the scarf or missing the scarf. You give somebody that kind of pleasure, it's... It's just uh, just a tremendous more than more than stuff giving somebody um, calling people uh, and saying so I was just thinking about you so I'm calling you sending birthday cards on people's birthday sending a real card mm-hmm. you know people are, you know but people say to me wow Real card, not just one of those singing things because you belong to Jackie Lawson, <laughs> which I do belong to. My granddaughter told me, don't send me any of those tacky Jackie Lawsons. I delete them right away. But, you know, I actually love the tacky Jackie Lawsons. I think they're, they're fantastic. And I send them to a lot of people. But, and I don't think it's whether it's tacky, not tacky, but that someone thought about you. Uh, it's just this movement of the hand. I said, uh, well, no, really, I will finish because it's 11. Uh, but I remember saying it's a good thing. Of course, sometimes there are people going to listen to, going to, listen to this tape uh, of a Dharma seed, so they won't see this very gesture that I'm about to make that say, it's a good thing that you're looking at me because when I teach Dharma, I find myself making this gesture all the time, that uh, this gesture of open-handed, and, and uh, some years ago, Ajahn Sumedho was here teaching, 
uh, a teacher retreat, and he was uh, talking about how he worked in his own mind with the fact that anger arises. It arises in everybody's mind. His holiness, when they say, uh, does, uh, your holiness, does anger ever arrive in, arise in your mind? He laughs. Hey, he says, of course. And everybody else laughs. He said, something happens, it's not what you like, anger arises. But it's not a big problem. <laughs> and you realize, and you realize that he, he somehow attends to the situation without making a mess out of it. Anyway, Ajahn Sumedha was saying, sometimes there's uproar in my monastery and my monks and my nuns are not happy with what I'm doing and there's discord and I can feel my mind, in my mind, some sort of anger arising. I says, but it's so unpleasant. And I think to myself, it's like that. I can't do anything about it. And this gesture of, it's like that. It's, I'll leave it alone. And it's, it really means it's out of my hands. You know when you say that thing? You say, it's out of my hands. It means I can't do anything about it. Not that I wouldn't like to, but it's out of my hands. And you have to do this gesture. So I always think it's too bad that people aren't watching with how it looks. But it's this very open-handed gesture. If it's out of my hands which in the largest sense is true of the life. You know, it's really out of our hands. That when we go out in the morning, we don't know if we're going to come home at night. We don't know if the people we love are going to come home. It's pretty good guess that they will, but things happen all the time. I don't know how the planet is going to survive. I'm hopeful that all these incredibly brilliant young people, so many of whom are under 30, who are coming up in the world and want to have a planet, are going to figure out how to iron out the pollution over the polluted cities, vacuum out the pollution out of the polluted cities, and clean up the waters and clean up this planet and keep it alive. Because there's so much desire for us to take care of ourselves and our kin, and the whole world is our kin. I guess I have to stop because it's... Uh, no, I'm going to give this out. So we need two people to hand this out either side. This is, these are Thich Nhat Hanh, uh, 14 Principles of Engaged Buddhism. I am not... You don't become a Buddhist by reading them or studying them. Uh, but I'd like to invite you to think about them before... And bring them back whenever it is. It's not next week that I'm back, but when... February 8th, I will be back, February 8th. February 8th, I'll be back, and we'll continue with the generosity, and we'll continue with the parameters, and we'll do the precept. And February 8th is the second Wednesday of the month, so please remember, on the second Wednesday of the month, you can come an hour early and have a three-hour class instead of a two-hour class in which in the first hour we take the precepts. So, aware of the fact that we come together to support each other in opening our hearts and minds towards peace and kindness and grateful for that opportunity, we can wish together that we take our lifted up minds from each other into this world, into our lives, into our families, and hope that our spirit and um, hopefulness and trust that the world will take care of each other, itself and each other, 
will sustain those around us and ripple out and sustain as far as it can in this troubled but potentially peaceful and beautiful world. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.